Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and it is good to be back in the studio and to be live with you on this Tuesday evening. As usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your Tuesday evening or making time to join us here on That's Truth. Pastor, there at the end of the episode two weeks ago, there was two questions that came in. You didn't have time to answer them in as much detail as you would like, would have liked at that point. Uh, the One of them was from a caller from Nevis, and he was referencing Luke chapter 12, verse 36, which says, And ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Pastor, what wedding is referenced in that verse, Luke twelve thirty six? Yeah, the danger of uh, the interpretation, which I think the gentleman might be guilty of, is assuming that this is referring maybe to the wedding of the bride and Christ and the bride. But if you read the text very carefully and uh, read from 36 on downward, you discover that Christ is using four illustrations of being ready or being alert. Uh, the first illustration is found in verse 35, where he says, that gird up the loins. And of course, people in the first century world, you know, they had flowing garments. And uh, it, most people uh, wore garments down to their knees. When they were going to engage in any activity, they had to pull that up into the, into the girdle, tuck it into the belt so they can be move. That's the, that's the concept being, being used there. The idea is being ready and prepared to be ready. So he's using that analogy of uh, girding the loins, and that is t- taking your long flowing um, gong and tucking it into your belt so you can, can run or you can race, whatever. The second one that they use has to do with having your lights burning. And that has to do with the, you remember the ten virgins? that some <coughs> had lights and some didn't have lights. Again, that goes along with the custom of the Jewish uh, wedding uh, where the bridegroom is coming back with it to meet his bride and is being accompanied. Uh, so that's the image that's used there again. The idea is that you should be ready when the bridegroom is ready. Okay. And then the third one is used where it talks about returning from a wedding. Again, it's an illustration of if a, a, um, a, a, the master has gone to a wedding He's returning to his house. The servants are supposed to be ready at any time the master returns. So there's no 
uh, specific reference to um, anything other than an illustration of a master coming back from a wedding and the, the servants ought to be ready to receive him. And then the third one, of course, is you must be watching. That's from in verse 37. Uh, a thief going to uh, break in. He doesn't call you and say, I'm coming over. So you've got to be constantly watching. So those are four typical illustrations that are used. And if you look in the last part of the, the verse, um, verse 38, I think it is at 37 30. Read those together. Uh, verse 37 says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself <coughs> and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. In verse 38, yeah. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. So see, that's the summary of what he's been teaching. So he's using four illustrations from common events, custom in those days, to illustrate the fact that the believer needs to be ready when he's about to return. So, um, But that person, I suspect, took the words wedding because wedding is normally associated with the um, the. The the, uh, the wedding of the bride, Christ with the bride. So I guess he's assuming that. Uh, wait, wait a minute. If this is true, it means that he's returned. He went. To, he had the wedding yeah. ready, but he talked about he's coming back for his own in the same passage. So he's just using illustration after illustration, four different illustrations to show that you need to be alert and ready. So the the, the, the concept of the wedding here, uh, it is only used as an illustration of being ready when the master returns. Uh, by the way, part of the reason for that sometimes a wedding uh, could last for seven days. Whether the master spend five days or six days or one day, the, the servant is to be ready whenever he returns. That's why that illustration is so appropriate because he didn't know when he was coming back because the wedding lasted so long, but he didn't have to stay the whole wedding. He could decide to leave four days, three days, whatever it is. And that's the whole concept behind that, that word wedding. Thank you to the individual who called in with that question. And Pastor, the other question that's a carryover from the last live episode that we did two weeks ago was a WhatsApp message and they were referencing uh, the word dog in the passage Matthew fifteen twenty four to 27. Uh, and let me read that. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And he said, and she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Pastor, what, what, are, what's meant by that? You know, I um, I was thinking when I was re- reading that and reading the passage again uh, to see how how things have changed, how we become like snowflakes, that the slightest little suggestion of uh, an insult. Or something that seemed to be harsh or inappropriate, we take it so so um, so brazenly um, offensive. We've become too politically correct. Uh, yeah, we we have, we really have. But in, in the passage, what is really the outstanding thing about this passage is what Jesus said about her. I've never met a woman who had such great faith. That's the emphasis of the whole passage. As a matter of fact, it is fascinating, Nathan, that in the entire New Testament, there are only two people that are said to have great faith, and both of them were Gentiles. That's the shocking thing about wow. this whole thing. The centurion, yep. you find uh, in Matthew chapter 8, and this lady, two Gentiles that are not part of the covenant race, that when our Lord, uh, they meet our Lord, they demonstrate so much faith, the Lord said to them, I've never found such great faith. That is what is the commendable quality in, in this particular passage. The other thing I'd like to say is, you know, we are at a disadvantage of not knowing the tone 
in which our Lord said that. Okay. You know, was it a, a repulsive tone or was it a tone that was teasing? We don't know that. But we know from the passage that his design was ultimately to heal her. I'll tell you how we know that. Because he left Israel and went directly into that part of the world. So he's leaving Israel. And you remember in the story here, he tells her, listen, salvation of the Jews, and I was not sent but to the Jew. But he, again, even though that is true, he himself has taken the mission to go to this place in, in Tyre and Sidon because he's going to meet this lady who has a need to respond to the need. So it, is, it must not be taken if you don't understand who he is and what his whole purpose is. Uh, you could take that suggestion. The other thing is that the word that is used here um, for dog um, there are two words in the Greek language uh, for dog and it is fascinating the one that is used here um, there's the dog that means the cur dog that is the street dog that's, that feeds off the dump and eats the carcass and the dead animals the word that is used here is the household uh, puppy basically the, 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 this is, it's like you having a dog in your house but that's the one that you, you care for that's, not the, that's the word that is used here so I'm not sure she picked up on it and understood what he was saying. You know, you, uh, he's using the word, but he's using the idea that, you know, even though the dogs are under the table, it's the, it's the dog that belongs to the home that's under the table. But his point was to get across to her that salvation really is of the Jews. And that uh, the Jews were in God's priority in terms of, of this whole matter of conversion. As a matter of fact, even the Apostle Paul in, his, in Romans says, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So it's always the gospel and always the salvation being offered to the Jews because salvation came to the Jewish nation. Remember that every uh, group under heaven at one time had core truth about God. And then they went away from the true and the living God and went into heathenism. Then, in God's grace and His mercy, He picked up a man called Abraham, who was living in Ur, the Chaldees, who Joshua says, "Your fathers serve idols." So this was an idolater that he chose and selected him to be a means of bringing back the truth to the world so that Israel would become a force of drawing the nations to the true and living God. That was God's purpose in choosing Israel. It was never an end in itself. It was always a means to reach out to the Gentiles. You mentioned core truth. What is core truth? Well, core truth is that um, basically everybody at a point, every, every uh, major race at one time, had basic fundamental knowledge about God, who He was, His power and His Godhead. Uh, uh, they had basic truth about morals because we're told that God has written the law in our hearts. So every nation ever under heaven had that kind of core truth that there was a living God, He was uh, powerful, He was divine, uh, He obviously had to be intelligent, and He had to be one that uh, is merciful. And uh, in addition to that, of course, you had also had to have the, 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 the core truth that uh, that uh, he created us, that we are made by him. Those are core truths that are known. Other core truths, by the way, is the flood. Every civilization has got a story of the flood. Every civilization has got a, creation, a story of the creation. Only thing is distorted. Right. So the, every every nation, every tribe, basically, even if you go to the Alaska, if you go to um, the Eskimos, if you go into South America, you'll always find that they always have this care truth that it's a supreme being. And the, the other thing is that they somehow understood sacrifice because all of them are sacrificing some animal to appease the gods. So the biblical truth that began in Genesis chapter 3 where God killed an animal and clothed Adam, clearly those are core truths that, the, that was universal. But as man got away from God and went into heathenism, idolatry, uh, 
and the whole world became apostate. And God made a sovereign move in His grace to redeem humanity by calling out a people. And it began with Abraham. He had to begin with somebody, but he chose Abraham. And Abraham's seed became the vehicle through which the Messiah would come that would be the Savior of the whole world. Pastor, I heard someone today say that the only way that this world is going to get better is for us to love ourselves and love those around us because God is not in heaven. He's in each and every one of us. How would you answer that from a biblical? That song, like mythological um, universalism, basically, uh, we know that every person is made by God. We don't dispute that man is made in the image of God, but not everybody has God in them. That, that's a myth. That's a, The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. The only thing that God comes into a, believer, a person's life is when that person repents of his sins, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in him. That's when we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. But man outside of Jesus Christ is lost. And the idea, I mean, clearly love is the premier virtue. The entire Old Testament is made of the two sections. The first section, first four, has to do with love towards God. The last six has to do with love towards each other. So clearly the whole core of morality is based on love. But man is a fallen creature with an evil, selfish nature. And uh, he needs something bigger than himself to deliver him from his selfishness. And that's where conversion comes in. And when a person is converted, a new heart is given, a new nature is given. And uh, the Holy Spirit transforms that individual so that that kind of love is possible. But it's not possible in the world without Jesus Christ. Nothing of that nature uh, is possible. If that were true, Christ died in vain. And so it sounds good. It sounds attractive. But in actual fact, it's just a bogus uh, mythological belief. It's, it's not based on anything solid in Scripture. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. Do you have a question? Do you have a suggested topic for a future episode? We would love for you to call and be put live on the air. The phone number to call is one 462 7420. I realize I said that really fast. I have it memorized. So go ahead and unlock your phone and I'm going to give it to you again. The phone line is open and available and the number to call is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, that is not a problem. We would still welcome your questions and comments. You can send them to us via WhatsApp or text message to the following phone number, one 282 As your questions come in, we will answer them in the order in which they have come in. Uh, we also ha- are on Facebook Live for this particular program, so you can not only see behind the scenes, listen to the program, but also interact with us through commenting on the video feed. Just go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the vi- Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your thoughts. Pastor, did you have anything else you wanted to mention in relation to the word dogs there? No, I, I just think that the people person need to understand. It is, by the way, I'm told from all these commentaries I've read that uh, that's the, the way the Jews refer to the Gentiles. Uh, I just think that it's a, it's, a, it's a story of a woman who understands her place. She's humble. Uh, she's not offended unnecessarily. Uh, she accepts, accepts her position as a Gentile, recognizes that salvation comes to the Jews because she calls him what? 
have mercy upon me, thou son of David. So she knows the Messiah is coming. He's in the Davidic line. So she's prepared to take her place of subordination uh, to this. And you remember also um, in, in John chapter 4, uh, where the woman said, um, um, he said that, um, Jesus said her salvation of the Jews. Okay. Right? That's a basic thing. So, um, But we should not get offended where other people are not offended. I just think that we're living in a world that is so sensitive today that you can hardly say a word except people just grab. It's like, like that's what happened in America now mm-hmm. uh, about this, 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 this culture thing that they're talking about. I think that that's where we reach, quite frankly, because it's become more of a racial issue than it is looking at it uh, more from a scriptural point of view. Uh, but she knew her place, she took her position, and she had the kind of faith that could not be resisted. She reminds of a woman who would not accept no. It's her perseverance that our Lord had mercy. I've never found faith like this, not even in Israel. As a matter, he compliments her more than he compliments his people, and that is a very significant uh, fact that he did that. This week, if you were listening last week, you would have heard the announcement that we were not broadcasting live, that we were doing a rebroadcast. Last week, we did a rebroadcast here of an episode of That's Truth where we discussed cults. Cults and false teachers, unfortunately, are not always in some distant place. This past week, a local news agency here in Antigua published an article in which a local pastor defended some controversial teachings. Pastor, I'm just going to share some quotes. I think in this case, the best thing to do is to um, read the quotes from this uh, local pastor so that I don't put them in the wrong light. Um. He says that his church, uh, the establishment, reportedly used the Bible when it began operating in 1996, but later abandoned the Holy Scriptures after this pastor had received a revelation in 2011. Um, He appeared to me, and this is the pastor speaking, he appeared to me in the sky, and then he took me up. So as I went in the sky, then I saw the sight, so I opened my mouth. I say, Jesus, I see you. Uh, In another encounter, the pastor revealed that while praying, he fell in a trance. So in a trance, a man appeared to me, and the man said, Write some strange language on my pillow. And a voice said to me from this day, Whenever you put your head on this pillow, I will write my words on it and put in your heart. Um, One of the more controversial, I'm going to share a number of these quotes and then give you an opportunity to reply to each of them from Scripture. Uh, Another quote, let me tell you the truth. Uh, Let me tell you the truth. A black man, to keep one woman, he can't. It's hard. The genes of a black man, whether you're a pastor or prophet, whoever, the genes of a black man can't take one woman, this pastor explained. Um, I've got more quotes, and I'll share more, but I think there's plenty there for you to begin uh, answering from a scriptural standpoint. Are any of these statements things that you're comfortable with saying that are scriptural, or how should we approach when someone uh, discusses such issues with us? You know, I I thought I could not be shocked, but uh, this one is shocking even though there's sufficient biblical evidence to let us know that these are things that are going to happen uh, as we come towards uh, this living eternity in Antigua. Um, I figure, in my judgment, I think he's a fake. I think he's a fraud. I think he's a false minister. Uh, 
he is certainly cultic. Any man that says he's gone away from the Bible is, is no longer in the biblical tradition of Christianity. The fact that he claims to have received um, visions and uh, had um, what might be called astral travel, where he's taken up, etc., etc., uh, and then he is given some kind of special writing on his pillow and is given a special interpretation. Uh, I, I smile and I, I, I laugh when I hear these things because I can't believe any sensible person in Antigua would believe that this is this could really be. He's no doubt a person who's self-deceived. Um, the doctrine that he teaches, um, and by the way, the doctrine you just quoted, what he's teaching about the family, he says that, uh, uh, let me tell you the truth, a black man to keep one woman, he can't, his heart, his genes of a black man um, doesn't allow him to do that. Uh, he can't take one woman. And then he allows multiple partners within his church. And he said he did this by divine revelation. That's the point. I can say to you without even compunction of conscience, this man is a false prophet. Uh, God did not reveal that to him because it's completely contrary to what God teaches in his word. What what bothers me a little bit more about this matter as well is that I am thinking here as a pastor and uh, what could he be teaching our young men, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16? Uh, all he is actually doing is preparing these young men to live very, very immoral lives. He doesn't elevate them to pursue uh, moral excellence is actually lowering the standards so that they encourage them to get involved in a moral activity because they're being told that it's in their genes uh, that that's why they're the way they are. The Bible says it's not in the genes, it's in our sin nature. Uh, that's what, why, what, why we do what we do. Uh, all sin comes from an evil heart. So he's not helping anybody because he's not given a solution to the problem, which is a new heart that Jesus Christ gives when you put your faith and trust in him. Now, if someone holds to this belief that a person can't control themselves in order to only have one partner for life, what biblical passages or what concepts, principles would you draw out of Scripture to apply to that? How would you defend well, your stand? My, my first thing would be that the Bible from the beginning right through is a monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife. But Abraham had multiple. Yeah, we know that. But again, we, we must remember that Abraham, when Lord found Abraham, Abraham was in a, a culture that was practicing all of these type of things. This is not something that God approved. A lot of things, I keep telling people, a lot of things you find in the Old Testament, because they're actually there in the narrative, does not mean that God approved them. God records the warts, and they're all about a person's life, not all the good things. But it doesn't mean that everything that he put, he sanctioned. Uh, he just let you know, this is what humanity was that I was dealing with. But you've got to go back to God's original plan. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 18, when it, this matter of divorce, he came, he said, listen, let me tell you what God's original plan was. One man, one woman, and that it be a, lo a lifelong relationship. So he took them back to God's original plan. And that's what we must always do, take them back to what God... What God stated in Genesis is what God wanted. The narratives about men's lives after that uh, doesn't mean he endorsed everything that is there. He's just showing you the kind of human material he had to deal with. The other thing I would say, Nathan, is we come leave the Old Testament, go into the New Testament. It's very, very clear that our Lord in his teaching required one man, one woman. Paul required one man, one woman. Let a, let a man have his own wife, not wives. Okay, that's it. And then the other thing is the Holy Spirit of God that is given to the believer at conversion. 
he's uh, one of those fruits that he produced in our lives is self-control. He gives the believers self-control. And so there's no excuse for a Christian claiming he can't help himself because of his genes. Uh, a transformation took place where he's now a new creature in Christ. And that transformation involves the giving of the Holy Spirit and the uh, impartation of a new nature. Uh, so this has a transforming effect on a person's life. So we cannot use the excuse of, of genes, or we cannot use the excuse of habit uh, as a basis for doing what we're doing. But this guy is really, really a shocker. Um, uh, then he, he, you didn't read a different section too, Nathan, in the last part. He, um, if you read that section, when he, he counsels uh, married women, and part of his counseling uh, about sex is when you go into the bathroom, practice sexual positions. What pastor would make those kind of brazen statements in public like this, uh, to my mind? I mean, this is, this is a crude person who clearly doesn't seem to have any moral conscience. He's depraved. And in my judgment, I cannot understand why anybody uh, in Antigua uh, carry his, his uh, false doctrine over there, but we don't need it in the Caribbean. It doesn't help us in any way. Now, one of his claims is that he has these visions and that those visions are more up-to-date to Scripture. In other words, that's why he doesn't need Scripture anymore. How would you defend that from a biblical standpoint? Again, this is one of the features of being a cult. A cult always has an extra biblical source of authority. It goes outside the pale of Scripture. We know the Bible is complete. If you read Genesis and you read Revelation, nobody can read those two books without understanding we've got the beginning, we've got the end. In between, there's sandwich between is what God wants us to know. Every major cult that has gone off on a tangent and got involved in some kind of uh, false doctrine have either made a claim that they've had visions or they've seen angels or they've had some uh, unusual spiritual experience. It always takes you outside the realm of Scripture. So I don't doubt, by the way, that some of these people have had th this aesthetic vision or, or, or whatever. But remember that there are good forces and evil forces. The Apostle Paul himself in Corinthians even said that Satan can be, display himself as an angel of light. So don't be deluded by these kind of claims by any man. The thing is, is his claims consistent with the Bible? And clearly they're not. They're contrary to Scripture, and uh, there's no biblical support for it. And hence, this person is a false prophet, he's a false minister, and I believe he's also a fraud. Why in the world would Satan who hates light, want to sh show himself as an angel of light? To deceive. His, his, his fine work art is de deception. I mean, why? Well, if he came as the artist portray him with a, a, a goat's head and a long tail and a red tail, everybody is terrified. But if he comes as somebody who's loving and caring and affectionate, uh, clearly people are, are overwhelmed by this generous spirit and are captivated by maybe his, his smile or maybe his charisma or maybe his oratorship or whatever he's got. But the whole thing is you've got to present yourself in such a way that people accept you and people find you affable and friendly. And uh, this is why he would do this. It's, it's a means of deceiving. So to make sure that you are not being deceived, stay in Scripture and keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM. And for this program, we're also 
online on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can comment your questions or your interact with us there via the Facebook video feed. But then 24 hours a day, we are also online. Our English programming can be heard all around the world. All you have to do is go to www.radiolighthouse.org. Currently in our studios on this Tuesday evening, the time is 7.59. Thank you for making time on your Tuesday evening schedule to join us. Pastor, to this text message from St. Kitts Nevis, good night, Pastor. Please enlighten me on the following. What are the virtues of domestic love? Well, I'm assuming that when the person mentions domestic love, I'm assuming that they're referring to the love that exists or should exist between family members, especially a husband and a wife and parents and children. Um, I think everybody would understand that uh, this kind of love, domestic love, is the very foundation of a meaningful, uh, cohesive, enduring uh, family and marriage. So it's like the glue that binds the whole unit together. And where it is absent, it leads to the breakdown of the family, and of course that you get a lot of divorce. So it's actually the very foundation on which a, a meaningful, productive, satisfying, enduring marriage takes place. And that, that's, that's the key about it. It's, 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 uh, it's the main virtue within a marriage. And it's, as a matter of fact, in the scripture, I might add this, that the, in terms of the tone of love within the marriage, that responsibility is mainly given to the husband. So if the tone of marriage, of love within a marriage is deficient, it's not the wife's fault. It's wow. really the husband's fault. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility. The responsibility of respect and submission is the primary responsibility of a wife. So when you find a disrespect and there's lack of submission in the home, the woman carries the burden because it's through her example normally the children begin to sass daddy and respond to daddy. Yes. Pastor, we have a call from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening, good evening, panel. Hi, right, good evening, sir. Good evening. How are you? Not too bad. I'm doing well, and you're doing well. Good seeing you on last Sunday. God bless you. Yes, yes, thank you. Say hi to the wife as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How okay. can I help you today, sir? Yeah, I have two questions. I don't know if you can help me out. I would like you to help me. If I can help you, I will try. Okay. Um, I have a brother fishing with. He's a Christian. He has an argument talking about he cannot die. He cannot die. And I know in the Bible that after Stephen... About, after they had stoned Stephen, uh-huh. and he gave up the goods, the Bible talks about the father sleep. The, about what? When Stephen died, uh-huh. the Bible talks about Stephen gave up the goods and he fell asleep. He fell asleep? Y- yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and again now in Luke chapter 16, I believe Lazarus and the rich man, uh-huh. and the Bible tells you Lazarus was dead and was carried by the angel. Uh-huh. So how you would how you come that to me? Well, I don't think there's any problem there at all. I mean, uh, giving up the ghost, by the way, is the word there should be spirit. He gave up the spirit. This, you know, the, the, the old word ghost is, is used for uh, spirit. It's, people call, refer to the Holy Ghost. The mm-hmm. word ghost today connotes some kind of bizarre, um, supernatural, uh, uh, normally something that is evil. 
But it's saying that that, that that Stephen gave up the ghost and he fell asleep. That means that his body fell asleep. In other words, the sleep in the Bible refers to the body. The body sleeps in the grave. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. When the Lord returns, he comes back with the spirit of the believers. Read Thessalonians chapter 4. We come with him back to earth. The body's resurrected. The spirit goes back with the body. And so we go to be with the Lord. Uh, the other one that you made a reference to what again? Lazarus, right? Lazarus died, and again, remember this is a this is a uh, he's telling a story, uh, and uh, he's just illustrating that Lazarus himself, the spirit of Lazarus, goes to be in Hades, but in Hades there are two compartments. Uh, clearly one part where a person is tormented and where one is comforted. The believer goes to where the one is comforted. It's called Abraham's bosom. That's the term that the Jews use to talk about this protective place in, in Hades or Sheol. So his spirit is, is, is taken care of. Remember that um, until our Lord was resurrected, uh, believers went to Hades. It is after our Lord was resurrected and he had paid the price, then he took captive captain and took all believers with him. So absent from the body now is present with the Lord. Um, so that is that's the explanation for those 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 references. Your friend is probably a Seventh day Adventist. I would I would hazard a guess he's Seventh day Adventist, because they do not believe that anybody is conscious after dead. They believe that there's something called soul sleep, that when you die, you go to sleep, and then in the final resurrection, you'll be resurrected. But again, there's so many contradictions in the Scriptures because you've got Moses and you've got Elijah talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're discussing his death, his demise. Uh, Jesus said, my father is not the father, my father is the father of the living, not the dead. Uh, he did not say, I'm the God of Abraham. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. Remember the argument that he was using? He said, yeah. he was, he, by the way, he took a grammatical word, the present tense is, and showed him that Abraham was still alive. And it, Isaac was, I am the God of uh, Abraham. Not I was the God of the, They're still alive. In other words, that's his point he was making uh, in, the, in that passage. But I suspect your friend is probably an Adventist. and. Uh, no, no. No, he's not Adventist. He's not Adventist? Oh, he's coming mm-hmm. on, on Adventist influence then. Uh-huh. I don't know what they believe. Uh, okay. And I don't know what the point he was... So what is his point? What was his... Um, pos- Where he said say that he, as a Christian, he cannot die. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, what, he means, what he means by that, he means that the spirit cannot die. I don't think he means the body cannot die. The body dies, of course. The body goes to the grave. But the spirit, for sure, um, will not die. So that's what I know. That that is what that is what it, that is that that's the, that's the teaching. If that if if the if the body couldn't die, uh, we bury people every every time every day. Somebody's buried in Antigua. So if yeah. he's saying the body can't die, he's 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 contradicting reality. Exactly. He sung. In in that case, he would have to be a Christian scientist who didn't believe in death either. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've got people who have some bizarre beliefs. You just got to hold the scripture, tell them what the Bible says, and uh, you try to persuade them, but you can't persuade everybody. You just got to give them the weight of truth and let truth work upon their heart. And by the way, sometimes when you think the truth is not getting through, it's actually working, but it's working very slowly. But human pride is in the way that kind of prevents people saying, you know, I now see that. Sometimes yeah. it's difficult. So you keep on with your good work, my brother. Okay, and um, second question. Sure. Um... What how you would define the difference between uh, a gift like you have a, a good gift you can preach you can pray good but the character how you would deviate that character and gift? Well, it's interesting. That's a that's a very very good uh, um, very good dichotomy you're drawing there between gifts and uh, character. 
uh, when a person is given the gift of pastoring or preaching, he has to have a certain character. If you read uh, Titus chapter 1 and Timothy chapter 3, you'll find that Paul outlines what are the qualifications for a pastor or a, a deacon, and you'll find that all of those qualifications with very short are character qualifications uh, there's one intellectual qualification that he must be able to teach all the others have to do with his character his morality has to do with his public standing in society has to do with um, other other character features uh, like is you know he's not a um, he's not self-willed he's not uh, a person who is uh, own wish, want to have his own way, etc. He's not selfish, etc., etc. There are all of those things, but all of those are character uh, characteristics, and these are it has to do with virtues that a person should have. So normally, the gift and the character should match, uh, because mm-hmm. if God give a person a gift of an evangelist, uh, certainly he must have a character that is worthy of that particular gift. There are a lot of people who who pretend that they have a lot of, have gifts, but when you look at their lives, it's so contradictory. Uh, there is something wrong there. If God give you a gift for the church to be used within the church, whatever that gift is, normally uh, your character should fall in line with that particular gift. So if the character is contradicting the gift, there's something wrong there. Okay, but, but being a, uh, uh, even though your character bad and you're preaching and you're still willing to... No, 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 no. That, that disqualifies you from preaching. The Bible is very, very clear on these matters. Uh, and by the way, that's a mistake that people make all the time. They always say you can't touch the Lord's anointed. Well, you can't touch the Lord's anointed if he's the Lord's anointed. But the truth of the matter is, the, 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 he, you know he's the Lord's anointed when he falls in line with the character who sticks that God says he should be. When he, stand, when he steps outside that, then those matters are brought before him, and the church can defrock him even though he's been ordained by the church. If his character is not matching up, the church ordains a man to preach based on his meeting the biblical qualifications. Now in his life, he's clearly violating all of those biblical qualifications. The church has a right to revoke that uh, endorsement, and they should do that. Because why Why I really ask that question? Because I put me in my, in my love, Jimmy Swaggart. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I, 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 you know, Jimmy Schwager is still preaching. You know that. Yeah, he still has a congregation. He's not as large as it used to be. A man like Jimmy Schwager, in my view, as a pastor, I think when a person pastor gets involved in immorality, he should not be in the pulpit. His place is not in the pulpit. He's no longer a one-man type of woman. That's what the qualification the Bible requires of him. And you know, I keep telling people this: when a pastor has been involved with anybody in the church or even outside the church, he's had to live a very hypocritical life for quite a long time. So he doesn't have his conscience is seared to be very honest with you, to do that. And I think that disqualifies him. And once he described it shows that kind of weakness, chances are it was going to happen again. It's just a matter of time. The best thing to do is to let him go and do something else. Find something else to do but not the pulpit. I believe that too. Yeah. Um, I wish more churches would take that kind of a stand though. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead, sir. Yeah. Uh rough question. Sure. Uh does a Christian have to wait on God to tell him when to take communion or be that order from the Bible? No, I, there's no need to wait to, to do that. The Bible just tell you as, you, as you, as you observe the Lord's Supper, the believer should partake of it. But you don't have to be told that you can... Uh, what I would say to you, though, that you may sometimes be thinking that I should not take it because, number one, you didn't think about what you were doing. Number two, there might be something going on in your life. Maybe you've got a... Maybe you did something that you shouldn't do. It. You have a big tussle with another brother in the church, a big argument, whatever. It's just spirit doesn't feel right. I think in a case like that, you, 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 you know, you should 
say, to consider the fact not to partake of it at that point in time until you get things right with your brother or your sister. Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel it's important. You just don't take it because everybody's taking it. I think you should reflect on what you're doing and find out, you know, am I in a position to partake of the Lord's Supper? Am I doing anything that is contrary to God's will? Am I engaging in the activity that is evil, etc., etc.? By the way, when we have communion, that's why we, before we partake of the communion, we do what Paul tells us to do in Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself. So we always have a time, maybe five minutes, three to five minutes before we observe the communion, actually observe it, to get the believer to reflect and think and meditate and ask the Lord to search their heart to see if there's anything wrong. If there's anything wrong between them and a the brother, we advise them to, you know, just get up, tell, go to your brother and fix whatever mm-hmm. it is and then come back. But yeah, we should always examine ourselves. Yeah, why have, why have this question? Because sure. I used to go to a church there almost three years and I never see that person give communion. And I, I, I agree, maybe don't believe in that. They tell me, yes, but God hasn't revealed it to him yet to give it. Yeah, he, something is wrong there. If a pastor is saying that, something is definitely wrong. Uh, exactly. Something is wrong with him. Something not wrong with the Word. The Bible makes it clear that the believer should observe the Lord's Supper. That's something or, that's ordained by Christ. It's like, like, it's like a pastor saying, well, I'm not going to baptize a brother until the Lord tells me to baptize him. I mean, gosh. In the New Testament, when a person got saved, he was baptized. Yeah. Right. But again, today, we don't normally follow that immediately because you know a lot of people are not really sure what happened. And sometimes to rush into into making that, uh, and they're not too sure what's happened. So normally we do a a, a brief study to to go through the doctrine of salvation, explain repentance, and deal with prayer and the Bible study and those kind of things before we do it to make sure the person fully understands. In those days, uh, when a man made a decision to trust Christ, he believed he was serious because it would mean his family disowned him. He would be disinherited. Sometimes he'd be persecuted. These days, you make a decision. There's no consequences. So we do try to make it make people understand what happened, but the norm is to when a person believes you're baptized. Yes. Yeah, because after I get saved, I say six months before we get baptized. Okay. Okay. And I was the one that asked to be baptized. Okay. Okay. Yes. Anyway, thanks for answering my question. Yes. God bless you and keep calling. We so much appreciate you calling. Yeah. Say hi okay. to the wife, please. Okay. Have have a great night. Thank you for calling. And as Pastor said, it was great to see you at church on Sunday. If you are in Antigua and you are looking for a Bible teaching church, doctrinally sound church, we're not trying to draw you away from a church if you are in a church that is Christ honoring and doctrinally sound. But if you are looking for one, we would invite you to join us at Grace Baptist Church on Rowan Henry Street. In Gambles Terrace, we have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m., and an hour before that at 9 a.m. is Sunday school. And on Thursdays, we have our midweek service from at 7 p.m., and we alternate between prayer and Bible study on alternating Thursday evenings. If you were listening to Pastor's first answer to that uh, question about Uh, the person's soul or falling asleep, and you would like further information about soul sleep, we did a whole episode in April of 2019 here on That's Truth about soul sleep and the afterlife and what the Bible says and some common misconceptions and how to address them with Scripture. You can find that, and there's a couple of easy ways you can do it, but the easiest is go to our website, 
radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It'll be a picture of a microphone. And right in the middle of the screen, you will see a circle that says podcast. Click on that. There will be a link there for That's Truth Podcast. You can look at all the archive and look for episode number 64. And that is entitled Soul Sleep and the Afterlife. Now, Pastor, before that call, by the way, uh, thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for calling. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 814. Before you took that call, Pastor, you were talking about the virtues of domestic love. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to emphasize that, that aspect of it, that really uh, domestic love is the foundation essential for any kind of a successful marriage, any kind of a, a, a home that is going to be Christian or it's going to you know develop children that are worthy of the gospel. Um, so that's the essential thing that it is. I mean, to elaborate on, on, on that, I think that, that says all in terms of what it is. It's just an, an essential foundational um, uh, virtue that is necessary for an effective home and a family life, and if you're going to have a marriage that is lasting. But it, I also pointed out, Nathan, is that the, the tone of love uh, within a marriage is the responsibility of the husband, and the tone of respect and submission within the home is the responsibility of a wife. If there's a breakdown of love in the home, the father is the one, the husband's the one who tries to who must try to fix that. If there's a breakdown of authority, a breakdown of um um disrespect in the home, that normally stands for the wife showing disrespect to the husband, that's followed by the children. That's why the Bible uh, lays down the role of the husband and the role of the wife. Uh that doesn't mean a woman shouldn't show love. That doesn't mean a man shouldn't show respect or should submit once in a while to his wife when she's correct. But on a general and on the whole, the, the, the love tone is responsible to the husband and the respect and the submission tone is responsible to the wife. The next question that has come in, and by the way, we have lots of questions, but please don't let that keep you from sending in your question. But if you don't hear your question asked right away, wait, and we, Lord willing, will get to it before the end of the episode tonight. But we have a number of questions that have already come in. Did... Joashabed marry her brother. Well, Joashabed, uh, we must remember, is the mother of Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. And she was married to a guy called Amran. So the two of them produced these three children. Uh, what, what we discover about um, uh, Joashabed is that um, she married um, Aram. The thing about that, Aram was the brother of Kohath. And um, and what happened is that actually she married um, the aunt of her of her husband, so she was the so that is what what the whole thing is. It's not that she married uh, her brother; it was actually um, her husband's brother is who she uh, she she married. She married her husband's brother. Yeah, the aunt. Um, Okay, let, let's look at look at Exodus chapter six, verse twenty. Let's get it straight here. Okay, Exodus chapter six, and verse twenty. Yeah. All right. And Amram took him Joashabeb, his mm-hmm. father's sister, to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amran were in hundred and thirty-seven years. Okay, so it's his father's sister. Okay. <laughs> What what I was trying to avoid is that um, he I wonder if she married her brother, oh, but that's not see. the case. Um, 
um, what, Amran is the, the brother or, or the son of Kohath, right? And Joshua, Joshua uh, that was her father. So that's not the case. He didn't marry her brother. Okay. All right. The next question, who started slavery and where was it originated? That is a question in itself that will yeah, take a whole we, episode. Yeah, yeah. W- one thing that you, you, when I did the research on this matter is that um, slavery really spans many cultures and many nationalities and uh, it is very, very, very ancient. Um, as far back as the oldest civilization, which is called the Sumer Civilization, about 300, uh, 3500 B.C., uh, it was it was slavery was actually in Mesopotamia um, under the Hammurabi Code, which is from that same area Sumer. Uh, it does mention the practice of slavery. Uh, the other thing is that the Ottoman Empire um, uh, there's a war between the Byzantine, which is the Roman Empire, the eastern part, and the Ottoman Turks. Uh, that war took place between 1662 to 1479, and during that period, uh, a lot of people who were captured by the Turks were made slaves, etc. Uh, and then the Arabs had a slave trade from the 7th century to the 19th century, uh, so the Arabs had slavery. Where I think this person might be referring to is probably the, the, um, the transatlantic slavery, uh, which began in the 16th century. So long before the 16th century, you had the Turks and you had the Arabs uh, involved. And, of course, you had it way back in the uh, Mesopotamian time. You had slavery. So slavery is something that every civilization practiced slavery. It's just that in the 16th century, when they had the transatlantic safe trade, which began with the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, and later the Americans, that's when it came into prominence because of the, the uh, bringing Africans over to, uh, to the West Indies and also to America. The other thing is that African countries were also involved in the slavery because they were the ones that were facilitating it. They're the ones that would capture the slave and sell it to the Europeans, and then they would bring it across the Atlantic. So uh, it has very, very ancient roots. The, the, the first mention of slavery in the Bible, by the way, is the book of Genesis. That's when Joseph was sold as a slave okay. by the Midianites and the Ishmaelites to the Egyptians. And then when remember when Abraham went down into uh, Egypt, he brought a bondwoman. Okay. So slavery in Egypt as well. And then we know for 430 years, the Jews were captured in, in uh, Egypt in bondage and slavery for 430 years. So it's not something that started um, in the 16th century. It predated that. As a matter of fact, in the Middle Ages, um, there was very, very little slavery at all in Europe because they practiced a different kind of system where you could uh, work the land for the master. Uh, I forgot the, the term that is used there. But uh, it's only in the 16th century that it became prominent and then it was used um, to bring slaves to the Caribbean and bring slaves to, to America and slaves, etc., etc., to work the plantations, etc., etc. Something I didn't realize until I moved here to the Caribbean was that actually some of the Irish were brought in as slaves? Uh, yeah, yeah, indentured. So my 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 uh, ancestry on the Irish side um, were part of that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. We call it indentured servants. Yeah, but again, the 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 brutality of the transatlantic slave trade is is what is continues to be a sticking point for most uh, post colonial colonial um, nations, including the Caribbean and, and others as well. Uh, what I would say is that 
the kind of slavery that you find in the 16th century is not what we're talking in the Bible. The, and I would like to say to people who find that uh, it was allowed in the Bible, and again, this is why I keep reminding people that because a practice is is documented in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's something that is sanctioned or approved by the Bible. What what God did under the Mosaic Law was to regulate the system. It was a social system that has always existed. Look, 80% of the slaves, everybody in the population in the Roman Empire was slaves, 80%. Wow. Most of the churches, most believers in the New Testament church, all were slaves, basically. Uh, so it's not something that is, it just happened. It's just the Greek Empire, uh, in, spite, in spite of the time that Greeks gave us democracy, the majority of people in the Greek Empire, uh, once under, captured, were made slaves as well. It's just a common, common, common practice. But in the uh, old in the Old Testament, the first mention, of course, is in Genesis with Joseph when he went down to Egypt. So a lot of people get the impression, they're given the false impression that slavery is a European thing. It's not a European thing. Long before Europeans started to practice it, it's practiced by the Arabs, it's practiced by the Ottoman Turks. It goes back to Sumer, uh, first known civilization. And um, it's been practiced by basically every single nation, including Africans, etc., etc., you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. Time across the Eastern Caribbean, and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 8.23. Next question. What was the purpose of the Roman cross before Jesus was hung on it? Well, I'm not too sure uh, exactly what the influence is there, there but uh, the one I, what I would think that the cross has always been for one purpose in the Roman Empire. And that was the government means of executing people and uh, displaying terror and fear, uh, shame. And the other thing, it was a gruesome, slow death that was intended to instill such fear in you that you didn't want to have it. And remember also that no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. It was reserved strictly for the worst criminals. Uh, So... Before Christ and after Christ, it continued for that that sole purpose. It has no other purpose than to instill terror in people. And it was a capital punishment for offenses that the Roman government would would institute. But the whole design of it was to instill fear to deter any insurrection and encourage submission to Roman rule. You really think the capital punishment uh, instills fear and is something we should be using today? I believe in capital punishment for those who have practiced premeditated murder. Uh, if a person commits manslaughter, which is unintentional murder, there's no need to execute him. But the Bible makes it quite clear that if a person takes a other human's life deliberately premeditated, his life should be taken. And the reason why it is done, by the way, is because the individual is made in the image of God. That's the reason it is given. A lot of people use the excuse that, it's a, 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 you know, um, well, you shouldn't kill a person because you're taken. But that's the very reason God gave for taking a life. You took the image of God, and God said, if you did that, your life should be forfeited. So I do believe in capital punishment, and I do believe that it should be reserved for those who commit premeditated murder. So if that's the basis for it is that we're made in the image of God, but yet society, secular society, is moving away from the concept of God or the fact that we were even created by God, do you believe that that's a natural outworking of that is the fact that society is not politically correct to use capital punishment? I don't think there's no doubt, any doubt that in the Western world we know we turn into neo-paganism. We've moved away from the Judeo-Christian beliefs, and we know going back to paganism. You're going to find out that every th- major social evil or uh, crime that uh, Christianity dealt with uh, in the past, you're going to find that it's now going to resurface again. T- take abortion. 
uh, I don't know if people know that, but in the Roman Empire, I take the idea now that the Democratic Party is saying that you, a child can be born, and then you discuss with the doctor if the life should be taken. <laughs> Long before that even happened, that was going on in the pagan world. That's where the mother didn't want a child, and she would, uh, especially girls, and just throw her out under the under the tree, and then a fox would come and stick her. Sort of. And if a man, uh, the, 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 the Roman father decided if the child lived or not. He stood over the child and decided so, yes or no. That was the kind of, that's where we back up to. So we back up to neo-paganism again. And the reason that was is because we have gone away from the Christian truth. Completely gone away from this Christian truth. And because we've done that, we cannot sustain democracy without morality. And we cannot sustain morality without God. And the decline of the demise of God means the decline of the demise of morality. And it means the complete collapse of democracy. That's where we're headed. It can't be stopped unless we return to God. You mentioned that, or you stated that you believe in this new period, neo-paganism, I believe is what you called it, Mm -hmm. that each of those social evils is going to be returning. Um, So you're telling me that pedophilia, that would have been very prevalent in the Roman Empire, you believe that's going to come back with a force? Yeah, anyone that studies the last 14 uh, emperors uh, of, of Rome will discover that they were married, but they all had a little boy uh, as, a, as their mate. The wife was just to give children. The, the, the young boy was for entertainment and for fun and pleasure. That's come in the Greek Empire as well, by the way. This is, and by the way, did not Jesus said, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, even so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. We're returning to sodomy, and we haven't seen the worst of it. It's become very militant. And it's going to become more common, more common, because as long as we accept it, it can't, you can't stop it. And the thing about these, these people is that uh, it's not that they just want to be able to practice sodomy. They want you to endorse it. And if you don't endorse it, they're coming down on you heavy with the courts, or they're going to put some kind of violence against you. So I don't even know if these Western democracies fully understand where we're headed. But uh, clearly, uh, who would have thought, uh, even if you allow boogery, who would have thought we'll go further than that and allow marriage? I mean, this is shameful. This is this is this is abomination upon abomination. But that's where the Western world is headed, and our Lord made it very clear. And then He said, "As in days of Noah, you remember the days of Noah? What the days were like? Every man's evil. imagination of his heart was only evil continually, yeah. and it was violence." That's where we're returning, and uh, the Bible predicts it's going to happen. I think we can see the profile of it happening today. One, one other thing I want to say, Nathan, about this uh, this matter of the crucifixion. And the cross. What is very, very significant about this, by the way, is that a thousand years before there was anything called crucifixion, the Romans are the first one that ever brought about this system of capital punishment. A thousand years before that, the psalmist in Psalm 22 had predicted the Messiah would die this way; he would be pierced, and that is the that's the that's the miraculous glory of the of the of the, of the prophecy. That a thousand years before there was anything called before even the Roman Empire was even thought about, the Lord had said the Messiah would be pierced. Uh, and he would be crucified. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 to 22, you see it all there in that passage. So I think that's the, that's the thing about it, that the Lord predicted that this was going to happen and it came to pass. Pastor, we just had a caller call in. They didn't want to go on the air, but I wanted you to explain the answer to this question. Pastor Murphy, please explain why Jesus said, Who is my mother? Who is my brethren? In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, and I'll read the verses, and the question again is, why Jesus said, who is my mother and who is my brethren? Verse 46 of Matthew 12 says, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood 
without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold my thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand and told his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of the Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Well, if you read the uh, passage, I, I don't remember all the details, but clearly this was a distraction. They were trying to get Jesus to stop what he was doing. And they used the fact that his mother and his father, you know, that the, the, even his brothers thought he was mad. You know, as a pastor, thought he was mad. So here is his family trying to interfere in his mission. His mission is what? To do the Father's will. He's the Messiah. He's going to save the Jews. He's going to declare the kingdom of God. But there are, there are distractions. And he used the occasion to show that earthly family relationships are inferior to the spiritual relationship to him. So he's showing that uh, my real father and my mother is not my natural father and my mother in the sense that uh, they don't get the priority because they're my natural mother and father. Who gets the priority are those who are spiritually connected to me. So he turns to the disciples and said that these, these who are following me, these who are coming after me, these who believe in me, these are my, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister. He's pointing out the superiority of the spiritual relationship as opposed to the physical one between parents. Thank you for the individual who called in from Antigua with that question. Uh, explain the sick of palsy and does it still exist today? Uh, I, I checked up the, the reference to palsy in the Bible and it's mentioned numerous times. Uh, Acts, I just quote some of them Acts 7, Acts 8, 7, Acts 9, 33, uh, Matthew 4, 24, Matthew 8, 6, Matthew 9, 2. Um, Mark 2, 5, 2, 3, 2, 5, 2, 10, Luke 5, 13, Luke 5, 18, and 24. Uh, the word palsy is a New Testament disease that covers a wide range of paralytic illnesses. Um, uh, for example, it, it covers something called apoplexy, which has to do when you're parallel, uh, you're paralyzed with your whole body. Uh, that's, that's, that's a form of palsy. There's something called uh, hemiflegy, um, which is also has to do when you're paralyzed uh, one side of your body. You know, you've had people who've had a stroke and one side of the body is paralyzed. Mm -hmm. that, that's what the, the palsy has to do with paralysis, any form of paralysis. There's something called par paraplegia as well, which is your parts of your body below your neck are, are paralyzed. And then there's something called cataplegia where um, your muscles are contracted and part of your body can't, a person put out their hand and can't pull it back in. Or their hand had decided they can't move it. Uh, that is uh, palsy as well. So any form of paralysis really is um, what we mean by palsy. Um, the Jews, because it was so common, uh, one of the things is they call it a withered hand because the person's hand would be at the side, and because you don't use the muscles in your arm, they atrophy and begin to deteriorate. So the hand becomes very, very, very small. And you'll find that references made to this in First Kings 13, Leviticus 13, Zechariah 11, Matthew chapter number 12. So to answer the question, um, palsy is any form of paralysis. Uh, where a person can't function, the muscles deteriorate. And if it is today, yes, uh, any kind of paralysis would come under the same heading as palsy today. And there are people who are paralyzed uh, today, and that would come under the same heading of, of, of palsy. A WhatsApp question from Trinidad and Tobago. 
Good evening. I have a question. In the book of Genesis, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Yet in Luke twenty three twenty nine, Jesus says, For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never gave suck. Also in Matthew twenty four nineteen, he says, And woe unto them that are with children and to them that give suck in those days. My question is, is it wise in these times that we are living to have babies? Plus, would it be scriptural to avoid pregnancy? Also, Psalm 127, 3-5 speaks of children as the heritage of the Lord. That's a, a lot of questions there, but go ahead, Pastor. Yeah, I would like to say that we must not in any way diminish the mandate given to Adam. The mandate to Adam was, mandate to Adam was to uh, multiply, have children, and, and fill the earth, because, of course, the earth needed to be filling. Uh, the other thing that we need to recognize is that children are a heritage from the Lord, a gift from God. And marriage, uh, one of the purposes of marriage is for children. So um, uh, so they are a blessing, they are a gift from God, and uh, they are to be part of marriage. The passage you quoted in Luke chapter 23 and Luke chapter 24 has to do with the period of tribulation period. He's speaking to Israel, and he's saying to Israel, when this tribulation begins to happen, it'd be better that some of you don't have children. And if you are with child, woe unto you, because, of course, they had to flee Jerusalem and head into the mountains to save themselves because the Antichrist is going to come after the Israelites and try to destroy the nation of Israel. So that is referring to the tribulation period, and he's saying uh, when that happens, it's better that you don't have children when this catastrophe is going to come. You know, the Bible tells us that when this tribulation takes place, there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like this. By the time the Lord is finished uh, with this, between a half and two-thirds of the whole world population are completely decimated and completely destroyed. That's the kind of catastrophic event our Lord is speaking about. Um, as far as today is concerned, number one, today is not the tribulation, okay? So we must not use the, the tribulation as a basis to decide, dec uh, make decisions as far as children are concerned. What about those that would say, but the rapture, you teach the rapture is imminent, so therefore the tribulation could start at any time? Yeah, oh. but we don't know. So if, if, if we t take that attitude, and uh, let's suppose that people 200 years ago took that attitude, be, the civilization yeah. would be destroyed. Or 2,000 right? years ago. <laughs> right, right. The, the, we've got to realize that we've got to trust God. We've got to, uh, to, to trust Him with our children. Uh, if it is God's will that we marry, it is also God's will that we have children. We've got to understand that children are part of marriage. I would not marry a person who came to me and said, Pastor, we want to get married, but we don't want children. Well, I'm not the only person who can marry anybody. If you, if that's the way you feel, my, object, uh, my suggestion would be to find another pastor to marry you because children are a vital part of marriage. Um, it, it, it has not only a transforming effect upon the couple, but it makes them less selfish, more dedicated, etc. Et and many times, by the way, it's a child that keeps a marriage to go together when the married couple are having problems until they, they're able to deal with the issues. If they didn't have a child, most of them would have run off and gone off to somebody else. So children have an effect of keeping people, people together. I do feel that um, when it comes to children today, um, as long as I said before, um, God wants you to get married, uh, you have to be willing to accept the fact that he also wants you to have children. I think that uh, couples should sit down and discuss matters before they get married about children, 
that we want children. If you find out the person doesn't want children, that's something that you should, you should know that before you even go into marriage. Right. You go into marriage and then you discover, I never, I never wanted children, but you didn't tell me. So you should discuss uh, children, you want children, the number of children you probably would like to get. Uh, your wife might want a football team, might only want two or three, but those things have to be settled. You don't want to be debating and fighting over this matter uh, when you get into the marriage. You need to have an idea what we're looking at. And then the idea of the care of children uh, also need to be worked out between you in terms of thinking about the education and, and the upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. If you're of two different faiths or two different churches, uh, we got to decide where which church we're going to bring the child up in. All of these things should be decided on before you get married. But I don't think we ought to be so paranoid uh, as to be uh, worried that we want marriage but we don't want children. I think that's a mistake. We need to learn to trust God and trust our children in God's hand. If God has children for us, He gives us children, we can trust that God to be, take care of those kids as well. But we must never become uh, so paranoid that we don't want uh, many children. Could I say this? That in the darkest hour, we need light. And uh, often that light comes by giving a godly seed that keeps the light burning. We extinguish that light. Where is there hope for those in darkness? So our children can be used as instruments uh, to lead people uh, into truth. Pastor Murphy and Brother Nathan, I have a question. I know of a situation where a brother in a church was part of the assembly. He was married. He and his wife divorced. Then he got two children and two different women after he and his wife divorced. He was out of the assembly for many, many years. He was now. He has now gone back in the assembly, and the leaders allowed him to preach and take an active role in the church. Is that supposed to be? Shouldn't he be silenced and not allowed to have an active role in the church? I think the leaders are looking for trouble, serious trouble in the case like that. Uh, you're not only talking about a person beyond the church, married within the church, and divorced, gone out and got two different women, two different children, and then suddenly he returns to church and he's given this, this uh, freedom to preach. I think that is something that should be, um, I think that's a mistake. What I think that probably should have happened um, is that there should be a period of time uh, to really uh, see if there's any real transformation. Uh, there should also be uh, a, a where he should try to make any kind of retribution. That he, um, um, uh, not the word retribution, what's the word? Uh, restitution. 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 Uh, if the wife that he left is still there and uh, he realizes he's made a mistake, it's in an error, I think it's only right and proper that whatever uh, matter needs to be dealt with there. The two other women he's got, I don't know if they're in the church or outside the church. I, I don't know um, what that is. And the two, the two children he's got. This sounds like a total confusion for me. A guy like this, I would suggest that he plays a lesser role in the church. But to give him a, a, a role of prominence, uh, pretty much is saying to those in the church that it doesn't morality doesn't seem to matter. We can do what we want to. And when we come back, we can be restored to, to this kind of matter. I think a guy like that should be sat down with, spoken with, understand the repercussions of what he's done, how it's affected the church, the implications for using him back in a certain capacity. And, uh, and the other thing is this. I think it was important to sit down with the church if the leaders were thinking of using that person or whatever, I think it's important to sit down with the church and discuss that with the church uh, and see what, is the, what are the sentiments that the church has in that regard because you're ministering to people in the church and uh, the leadership 
uh, can lose the respect of the church if the church is not following. And if you're not people following, you're not leading. And I think that is that, that is an important thing. As far first of all, the, the other thing I like to say: this person should never be a pastor. That's a given. Uh, as far as preaching, that depends. As far as I am concerned, I, I don't know the situation with his wife. I don't know who's at fault in that case. That, to my mind, that's very important. Uh, the fact that he's gone out and had these uh, other two women and had two other children tells me he has a moral problem. Uh, he has come back to the Lord, which is good, but. Uh, Choices have consequences, and I do feel it's important that we elevate people in the church who are very high moral standard and lift up the standard and lower the standard. And I think in this case, this church has done a great harm to that church. And if it has not consulted the congregation to get the feeling of the congregation, I really think that uh, they might end up finding that they, they, without, they, they possibly preach the pews in the future, but no people there. This is a very, very sensitive matter, and it not, not, the pastors not, ought not to think they can just rough road over people and not take their sensitivities into consideration. Normally, the person in the church knows more than the pastor about the individual, and it would be a wise pastor or leaders to sit down and discuss this matter. But I, I would not recommend it. Time Across Eastern Caribbean is 843. We have lots of questions, and we will get to them as soon as we are able uh, Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Erlings Village, Antigua. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And that comes from John 4.24, which says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I interpret that to mean to worship God with sincerity and uh, in the truth as God dictates worship. In other words, remember our Lord is dealing with the Samaritan woman there. And uh, in John chapter 4, and it's in that context that he, he, he mentions this reference. The Samaritan um, group had a rival religious system at Mount Gerizim. They only held to the five books of Moses and never took in all the other prophetic writings. Uh, and I think that that is made in reference uh, specifically to her. Um, the other thing is that in, in dealing with her, um, um, she mentioned to him, you know, we worship in Mount Gerizim and you worship in Jerusalem. She's associating a place with true worship. The truth of the matter is that a lot of worship going on in Jerusalem is hypocritical worship. You just got to read the gospel to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees who control worship and realize that these are a bunch of legalistic hypocrites. And our Lord dealt with them very harshly with his words. So he's letting them know that worship is no longer restricted to any particular place. A person with a sincere heart worship the true God according to Scripture is worshiping just as any man in the greatest uh, aesthetic cathedral in any part in the world. That's what he's talking about, worshiping with a sincere heart and worshiping according to the Scripture and the truth of Scripture, what God says about worship. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Is the universal church a cult? I spent a lot of time researching the Universal Church, and i just tell you what I found out about it. First of all, it's a charismatic confession of faith uh, church. It's, um, it has certain beliefs. It believes that in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit is baptizes a person, it baptizes the person for service and empowers that person with supernatural gifts. It believes that the apostles and prophets are for today, and uh, so it do, does believe in living prophets and living apostles. Uh, it was started by a guy called Ider uh, Macedo. He was born in 1948 in Brazil. Uh, he's an evangelical 
Bishop. He's also a writer. He's also a multi-billion dollar uh, businessman um, as well. And the headquarters is the Temple of Solomon in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, the church was founded in 1977 in Rio de Janeiro. And it now has branches globally. It has branches in Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Paraguay, uh, Venezuela, uh, Chile, uh, Guadeloupe, Ecuador. It also has uh, branches in Trinidad, uh, Jamaica, and Guyana. It has also reached out into Europe. So places like England, Portugal, Spain, France, Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, Italy, Port, uh, uh, Poland, Germany, even in Russia and Romania, it has branches. And also in Africa, in Mozambique, Cape Verde, uh, Kenya, Ivory Coast, Malawi, um, Uganda, and Lesotho uh, have branches. And even gone beyond that, it has branches in Japan, in India, and the Philippines. The practices uh, is where the problem comes in with me. I do not believe there are any living prophets today. I do not believe there are li any living apostles today. The, certainly there are no apostles for sure in the sense of apostles in the New Testament because an apostle had to be one that saw the Lord. That was one of the basic qualifications. There's no need for a prophet who can give any revelation today because God's revelation is complete. His word is complete. Um, those are two, And then the, the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, we know according to Corinthians chapter 12, the, every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit. What they might be referring to is the filling of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer and baptize the believer into the body of Christ, we know that gifts are imparted to each believer. So every believer has a gift. Um, there are other problems with this movement. Um, they have a ministry of selling an anointing oil, and this oil is supposed to cure tumors, mental illness, uh, stomach problems, bladder problems, marriage difficulties, strokes, uh, heart defects, and marriage. depression. You said marriage difficulties? Yeah, including marriage difficulties. <laughs> uh, so this is a, and I don't believe in any, any kind of uh, magic oil. Uh, that these, and by the way, this oil is supposed to be uh, blessed in certain sites in Israel where miracles took place. So this is supposed to infuse this oil with, with some kind of miraculous power that when you get it, it's supposed to bring about healing. They also, they, they also teach the prosperity gospel. You give to get. Uh, and that, that uh, again, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Uh, it's not biblical. It is totally bogus. And then uh, they train pastors how to extract money from the faithful flock. So they're told how exactly the technique to use to get the people to give more. The other thing I learned about is that this church is mixed up with a lot of controversy. Fraud, money laundering, tax evasion, bribery, uh, witchcraft, quackery, uh, etc. And there are many, many court cases uh, that this court, this church is uh, wrapped up in. Many, uh, well not many, several of the African um, countries have had to ban the group from those parts because of the corruption that goes on in these churches. Um, I would say to you that it is difficult to lay it and label it a cult uh, because a cult normally has certain features. Um, it has extra biblical authority. They don't claim to have extra biblical authority. They don't deny any of the fundamental doctrines of the truth, like the deity of Christ, his resurrection, etc. Uh, they do not teach a salvation by works, as a cult would do. And they don't claim that they're the exclusive society of the, of the saved. They, 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 so a cult, they don't, and then they don't also play, uh, claim that they play a major role in eschatology of things to come. Uh, 
and they don't really have any unique uh, non-biblical doctrines like the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witness. So to label them a cult, I think, is, is uh, I can't label them at that po- this point in time, but they do have one cultic feature, and that is a central personality along whom the movement moves. Uh, seem to have absolute authority in this realm, and that's where they're inclined to become cultish in that direction. If I'm not mistaken, Nathan, there was a case in England uh, fairly recently where one of their leaders attempted to heal a person who was demonized, and the person was killed, the child was killed, and I think there's a case in England Hmm. about that. I think they beat the guy, the child to get out of the demons, and the child ended up being being dead. So, uh, very bizarre. I would not recommend anybody to be part of this system, part of this ministry, based on on these things I just mentioned. And by the way, if you go to Google and Google Universal Church, uh, the UCKA, uh, the Kingdom of God, you'll see that there you can se- read several articles about uh, court cases and charges that were brought against them. Uh, and the thing that bothers me most is that the guy who founded it uh, is a multi-billionaire, has a whole cadre of cars and large houses in different parts of the world. Uh, I think he's just milking the flock, and I get worried when a man uh, uses the ministry as a means of, of making money, it's become making merchandise of God's people. That bothers me greatly. I think a pastor ought to live modestly, uh, and I don't believe in this lavish extravagance I see on the part of these megachurch pastors. I think it's a disgrace, to be very honest with you. Pastor, we have in front of us a photo that was sent to us by a listener and I'll just describe it for those of you that don't have the courtesy of sitting in the studio with us Uh, the top half is a very pleasant scene looks like maybe a meadow with some hills in the background it looks like a painting Uh, and a angel of a fair complexion holding a scale in one hand and a sword over top of its head as if it's going to swing down on the other Uh, individual in the photo and at the bottom of the photo there is what I would assume is supposed to be a demon of a dark complexion and then there's some flames down in the bottom corner so it appears as if maybe spiritual warfare uh, an angel and a demonic influence I'll read the question now good evening I have a picture that I would like to share with you my husband brought it home and said that someone gave it to him upon seeing the picture my spirit tells me it's not a good picture. Somehow, the vibes I felt upon seeing it was not welcome. I said I don't like it, and he said his mother always had the picture hanging in his house since he was born. I said that's okay, but I don't feel right in the spirit with it. My question is, what are your thoughts upon seeing this picture, and would you hang it in your home? I don't like it myself, to be very honest with you. Uh, it really is a, I think it's a picture of the angelic being, and the, the, the scales is a scale of judgment and executing judgment against the devil. That's a picture of the devil there. Oh, the, the devil. That's the okay. devil, yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Lucifer, that's Lucifer that is being judged there okay. uh, by the the angel. Um, you know, a lot of these pictures, I don't know who the the the, uh, the artist, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these would have probably come from the Middle Ages when there were a lot of um, horror stories and the, a lot of depiction you read Dante's um, Inferno etc etc but I, I myself I'm not keen on these kind of pictures I, I don't um, 
I, I don't think the devil looks anything like what is in the picture, to be very honest with you. He's an angel of light. And they always depict the devil in, in some bizarre way, uh, as though, um, I, I guess, to show that he's evil. But if you find the picture offensive, for me, I wouldn't want it in my home either. Uh, I think you, there's reason to sit down with your husband and discuss this thing with your husband and say, look, this thing really offends me. I, I, you know, it, it really bothers me. I remember one time my wife uh, came back from the Philippines and she brought uh, a little effigy. It was a picture of a, um, of a person, but it had eyes that didn't have any eyes in it. So it looked as though it's a dark thing looking at me. And I remember she had it on the shelf and I'm looking at it and it's like this thing looking at me through it, you know. I said, "Hun, you got to get rid of that. I just don't want it in here, you know. I don't. And by the way, some of these things uh, genuinely were, are involved in some, uh, in some of them, not all of them. Some of them are just uh, tourists. Uh, things you buy but some of them are actually involved in, 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 in evil and uh, I had to tell her that I just don't appreciate that I don't want it in there and my wife had no problem in, in getting rid of it so I think in this case um, I think sit down with your husband reason with him any, any, any reasonable husband that loves his wife a picture should never divide a husband and a wife and create tension between them I think this is a very easy matter to settle just tell him Han, I don't appreciate this um, and I would appreciate if you you, you know you, we didn't hang it in our home I don't want confusion etc etc uh, and I hope that you would respect my judgment that this thing bothers me a little bit the fact that you had it or your mom had it um, doesn't mean that it ought to be in our home uh, this is not your mom's home don't tell him that of course if he <laughs> <laughs> but I think you can I think women have ways and means of getting men to do certain things and I think this is one that you probably could um, are you endorsing uh, manipulation I'm endorsing the fact that the wife uses her wisdom yeah. uh, to try to get him to understand that this is really an offensive picture that she doesn't really appreciate I think she has the skill to, to get him to take it down we have just over two minutes left in the program tonight, and I still have way more questions than we're going to be able to cover. So if you didn't hear your question asked tonight, please tune in. We'll start out next week's episode with it. Pastor, I'm trying to choose a question here that I think will be suited for these two minutes. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening, sir. Since the Bible says that all have come short of God's requirement, and there are so many shortfalls within man's religion— what is the shortfalls of Grace Baptist Church, or is your church the perfect one? Thanks. <laughs> there are no perfect churches, first of all. Uh, and if, and, the, and uh, let me just say this: the fact that the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, please let us not use that as an excuse to uh, to endorse or in any way to relate wrongdoing in people's lives. Uh, the Bible points that out for us to all acknowledge that we are sinful before God and we need divine help uh, to give us victory in those areas. So uh, when we put our faith and trust in Christ and we use the Word and the Holy Spirit, He enables us to walk in His will. But the idea that uh, because the Bible mentions that, therefore, um, you know, um, we should lower the standard or, or whatever, um, that's not what is being pointed out. It's just saying that we're all sinful. We must honor your sin. We must turn to God for help, seek forgiveness, and try to walk in His ways. As far as Grace Baptist Church is concerned, like any church in Antigua, it's not a perfect church. And by the way, if you ever found a perfect church, please don't join it because you're <laughs> going to corrupt it, okay? But I will tell you this. Um, while the our church is not a perfect church, uh, there are some things that... Um, I, uh, I'm i a little bit con concerned about in our church. For example, 
I would like people to be more punctual. That's a problem I've been dealing with. I think all Westernian pastors deal with that because we don't seem to appreciate the point of time. Um, I would appreciate people to come in more regularly on the Sunday night service when we had the Sunday night service. Some people today seem to think that they only go to the service Sunday morning and they don't need to go to Sunday night. I think that has led to the church being closed down and it's like a ghost town in, in Antigua now on Sunday nights. You can walk up in Antigua in most places and you see churches close, 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 close. If somebody is looking for God, the question is, uh, where's the church? And that bothers me a little bit. Uh, and then there, I, I think also that I'd like to see more people get involved in the different ministries. Normally 10% of people in the church do 90% of the work. And that's that's the general. I think that's in, that, that. And then, of course, I'd like to be more zealous in personal soul winning, etc. Pastor, for the individual who says, I want to be sure that I'm on my way to heaven, how do you know for sure, can you know for sure that you're a Christian and what do you need to do? Have you been convicted of your sin? Have you repented of those sins? Have you turned your life over to Christ and exercised faith in what Christ did on the cross? If you do that, the Bible says if you believe, you'll receive him, you'll trust him, uh, you'll be saved. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Again, I apologize that we were not able to get to all of the questions tonight. Thank you for all the interaction. Please be sure that you tune in next week. Encourage others to tune in, and we will start out the episode with questions left over from tonight. Have a safe night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.